Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. A year ago, Democratic members of Congress introduced a resolution to address climate change and economic inequality with a plan that would fundamentally alter Americans' relationship to our natural and built environments. That vision, the Green New Deal, recalls an earlier bold plan of action for the country at a time of crisis. Nearly 90 years ago, President Franklin Roosevelt proposed the original New Deal to lift the United States out of the Great Depression. The original New Deal created vast public works projects to create jobs, but its legacy transcends economic recovery. Public works projects realized the goal of universal electrification, built highways to speed future growth, and paved the way for migration to the suburbs and from old industrial centers to new. Along the way, the New Deal fundamentally altered the human map of the United States. Today's Green New Deal proposes to do something similar. If it comes to pass, it's likely to change where many Americans live and how they make their living. On today's podcast, we'll be talking about what a future map of America might look like, one that is shaped by climate change and a Green New Deal. My guests are Billy Fleming, director of the Ian L. McCarg Center at the University of Pennsylvania's Weitzman School of Design, and Alexandra Lillahai, Climate Infrastructure Policy Fellow at the McCarg Center. The two have been instrumental in a new initiative called the 2100 Project, an atlas for the Green New Deal. Through maps, the project envisions changes in population distribution, energy infrastructure, and agricultural activity over the course of this century. Billy and Zan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us on. So, Billy, I thought we would start with you. Could you tell us about the 2100 Project and its goals? Sure. So this atlas itself was really conceived uh, in relationship or in relation to three really intersecting issues. Uh, the first is really the climate crisis itself or the excess carbon in the atmosphere driving all of our physical systems to, you know, rising seas, increasing temperatures and the things that we've probably all become accustomed to, uh, or at least your audience on a podcast like this is probably accustomed to. Um, the second is that, you know, it's our own systems of extraction, production, consumption that are really at the root of this. Uh, and the third being that, you know, the U.S. population, in addition to all of these sort of massive systemic changes in climate systems uh, and infrastructure, is expected to add about 100 million people over the, the course of the century, uh, the 21st century, um, all while we're trying to deal with these, you know, huge uh, carbon related challenges. And so taking on, you know, those intersecting crises or challenges asked us, or forced us to ask some really unsettling questions. Um, things like what will be lost um, economically, culturally, psychologically, physically, um, should the climate crisis sort of continue unabated? Um, or, you know, how might we begin to come together around a response to uh, those intersecting crises uh, in ways that will reshape sort of how and where we live, the things that designers uh, at least like to think that they do quite well. Um, and then ultimately, you know, I think we also wanted to sort of um, ask some questions about the degree of certainty that tends to be implied in the climate modeling and even energy system modeling uh, that percolates, um, you know, in policy conversations today. Um, a lot of our colleagues are very certain about the, the sort of findings that their projections about both like the physical, social and economic world. Um, and for us, this atlas was about trying to one, I think sort of address all of the crises I laid out there at the beginning Two, I think sort of questioning or calling into question some of the sort of um, feigned certainty that underlies a lot of that modeling. 
Uh, we can talk about how we did that if you want in just a few. Uh, and then the third was to really take, you know, what, what if you look through the atlas itself, which is about 100 images, uh, something like 20,000 words of expository text, try to capture as much of the sort of disparate information related to the spatial impacts of climate change in America in one place so that anyone with an internet connection could get on, uh, could get online and find it, you know, useful, hopefully, to the way that they think about operating in the world. As you, as you know, a lot of this stuff is sort of hidden either behind paywalls. Um, it's scattered through the sort of, uh, you know, Byzantine universe of, of peer reviewed publications, uh, scientific reports, uh, white papers. Uh, and you'll see all of those kind of cited throughout the atlas. And so that last piece about sort of assembling all of these things into a single atlas um, with a sort of coherent visualization style with a sort of coherent narrative about, you know, how and where all of these different bits of data fit into this broader socio-cultural product or project, which could be the Green New Deal, uh, was really the driving force behind assembling all of this uh, the way we did and when we did it. Zan, let me ask you this, you know, why is this coming out of a school of design rather than say geography or sociology? So I think Billy touched on some of this, but um, one of the major skills of a designer is to think about the built environment and its transition or transformation, um, specifically over time. So what is and what could be? And so having this project take place in the design school uh, over, say, geography or policy or places that are a lot more about what is, we think a lot about what could be and what will be. Um, and also design is really expansive. And as this, as this project attests to, like it can also be about policy and other ways of seeing the world. And so as, uh, the design school is a great place to land it in terms of visualizations and also the capacity to imagine different futures and to deal with the lack of certainty in a lot of these models or the divergent certainty. You know, Billy, the map looks ahead to where Americans are likely to live, where industry will be located and how natural and built environments, again, will change as this century progresses. Now, the distributions look very different from what we see today. What are the drivers of change going to be? Well, I think there's a few things, and I should begin just by by noting sort of off the top, right, that a lot of these visuals uh, are not necessarily projective. If you get into sort of the last, say, quarter or so of the atlas where we look at things like economic damages, agricultural damages, uh, energy use uh, can, or energy consumption increases, those are where we start to build in a lot of these more projective models. Um, but I think, you know, at, at its core, what's driving this are a couple of the, the sort of forces that I outlined uh, at the top, one of which is just sort of biophysical. It's the sort of shifting uh, of the Earth's systems. And if you think about them as like an engine that we are continuing to add fuel to, with the fuel being carbon, like they are going to continue churning out more and more heat. That's going to change weather and atmospheric and oceanic processes that are going to make it hotter, uh, you know, kind of all over the globe. This is what the one and a half and two degree warming targets are really about. Uh, it's going to drive sea level rise all over the globe, um, which, you know, isn't a uniform phenomenon. It's varied from, from place to place. So it's not like two feet of sea level rise looks the same in New York versus, say, Norfolk versus, say, Bangladesh. Um, and then the other is really like a socioeconomic question. And I think, you know, I don't certainly we didn't intend as we were putting this together over the last couple of years to think about, you know, this atlas becoming a tool for thinking about what a, a stimulus response to a pandemic like COVID-19 might be. But also we know that, you know, every decade, decade and a half, there is this moment of crisis, economic crisis, a sort of, um, you know, crisis of, of what of sort of capital and business cycles and the inevitable sort of short-term collapse uh, of bubbles and other things sort of in the system. 
Um, and this pandemic is really offering, I think, again, like a moment to think critically about what kind of restructuring we want going forward. Um, and so as you think about like the, the physical elements driving change, you think about the sort of socioeconomic uh, forces that are, you know, the re that are resulting in the production of carbon that is driving that physical change. And then you think about these sort of political moments in which um, profound economic restructuring is going to happen anyway. Uh, what, it, what this Atlas offers, what the Green New Deal, I think, offers uh, is really a, a, a way to think about having some agency and some choice over what that what the form and content of that restructuring looks like. Um, we're sort of past the point of deciding whether or not we want to restructure things. And now the question is, like, how do we want to restructure them? Uh, and so this was really about trying to capture, uh, you know, some of the things we think we might need to answer that question in one place. Now, Zan, uh, you emphasize that the maps of the future are uncertain, right? Uh, the, the, the word that's used on the website describing the atlas is that this is fuzzy, uh, that the maps are uncertain, might seem obvious, but why so much emphasis on this uncertainty? There's a long history in mapping of drawing these lines that um, become reified in policy and other ways of seeing the world that just emphasize really strong borders um, and, and imply certainty and fixity. Um, and with this project, one of the main pieces of it was in this effort to talk about like that you can't know these futures and we're moving towards increasingly and increasingly like limited options within these models even that you can't know, but also there's a simultaneous winnowing of possibility. Um, we wanted to show some idea of what things could look like, but also attest to that uncertainty, that flexibility, that fuzziness, that there's futures that we can aim towards. Um, one of the things that we talk about with this project is backcasting, right? And that's kind of what's talking about the green stimulus. There's a future that we all maybe want. How do we get there? Um, and then thinking about these maps as ways of also a roadmap to that place. Yeah, I, the reason, you know, it says in there that the future is fuzzy and our map should be too, or perhaps our visual should be too, uh, is largely because I think um, there's there's a little bit too much feigned certainty uh, in the way that we, we sort of treat models about the future. Uh, often, I think even the, the folks behind producing them imagine them as kind of, um, you know, they're as kind of guides or speculative works about what might happen should a certain set of scenarios or assumptions unfold. But they get treated often, um, certainly in the media and often in the sort of policy development space as gospel. Uh, and we wanted to treat this project as a way of critiquing that certainty. And that's why I think, you know, to Zan's point, so much of this is about trying to sort of pixelate some of the data, trying to remove some of the certainty about both how things will look in the future, but also how they look now. Um, and that's why you see, you know, the, the, the set of drawings represented the way you see it represented. Now, you referenced the original New Deal from the 1930s as a guide to how we might understand future changes to the country. Why is the first New Deal a useful guide here in thinking about the future? Well, there's a few reasons. I think, you know, if we take the Green New Deal seriously for a moment, then we also have to take its central reference quite seriously, which is the New Deal. Um, and that's, you know, for a few reasons, I think, on their end. One is that uh, the New Deal itself is probably the last time in U.S. history that you know, strong uh, sort of national goals were, were really directly tied to policy, whether it was industrial policy or, or other forms of sort of, uh, uh, you know, intervention in American life. Um, but the New Deal is often remembered as a kind of, I think often as like a, a universal policy, um, it, its legacy is remembered as like one of universal social policy. So we think about social security uh, as sort of one of the, the sort of obvious outcomes of the New Deal. And while that's true, the New Deal also had a profound transformative effect on the built and natural environment of the U.S. 
and built something like 55,000 projects in real places all over the United States. Um, some things as like high profile as say the Appalachian Regional Trail, um, all the way down to the more mundane but vitally important, you know, sanitary sewer systems, state parks. Uh, we get something like 90% of all the state parks ever built in the history of the US during the New Deal. We get about 40, 45% of all the trees ever planted uh, in American history over the course of the New Deal. A lot of that going into protecting the shelter belts uh, and the agricultural fields of the Midwest. Um, and we also get about 40, 42% of all the uh, electrical transmission lines ever built in the history of the US, many of them by the REA. And so the New Deal, you know, in addition to providing Social Security, also brought cheap and reliable electricity to rural communities. Uh, it modernized and built our municipal airport system, uh, put millions of young people to work, uh, constructing shelter belts and parks and um, public works projects, uh, not to mention forests and farms and other public lands. And it also built tens of thousands of new public schools, libraries, parks, college campuses, civic infrastructure. And it did it in almost every single community. And certainly it did it in every state. Uh, and so when we think about, you know, the way the Green New Deal might actually be understood by most people, it seems pretty unlikely to me that it'll be really felt acutely uh, in like molecules and electrons. And by that I mean like molecules is in carbon reduction and electrons is in like electricity. Uh, we're not going to, you know, flip a switch uh, or say get on our computer to tape a podcast with you and notice that the power supplying it is coming from wind instead of coal. But we are going to notice when, you know, the homes we live in uh, have these luxurious new deep energy retrofits with all conduction uh, stoves uh, and other electrical appliances. We are going to notice when our commute to and from work uh, is powered by either, you know, an electric vehicle that we were able to buy very cheaply because of a tax credit uh, by a low or no carbon train or bus. Um, we are going to notice when you know, there's a massive upgrading and expansion of the park system in every community, you know, in the United States. Those are the things where like the material benefits of national economic policy can really be felt and understood by most people. And the New Deal, although I think a lot of that history or a lot of that legacy has been forgotten, offers us a really interesting uh, way to think about how a Green New Deal with its own sort of set of abstract national scale policy might be understood in real places to real people. So what are the elements of the Green New Deal as we understand it right now that will drive such transformational change as you've just spoken about? Sure. So, I mean, the Green New Deal remains uh, in its relative infancy, you know, compared to a lot of the other ideas that have been in wide circulation in policy conversations for years and years and years, if not longer. Uh, but at its core, I mean, it, it sort of has three planks. One is about jobs, one is about justice, and one is about decarbonization. And they're all linked. And the idea is to, you know, create tens of millions of jobs uh, that decarbonize, you know, the economy, and that put frontline communities uh, at the sort of top of the queue for, you know, the, the rolling out of those kinds of, uh, of those kinds of projects, those kinds of funds and financing. And if you go back and look at HR 109, this is House Resolution 109, the sort of first uh, formal document beginning to list some of the goals of what a Green New Deal might accomplish. It includes tons of material in there that are of just like utmost importance to anyone in the design or built environment professions. Uh, it talks about things like decarbonizing uh, and maximizing water efficiency in all buildings. I think it even calls for doing so in every single building in the United States by the year 2050. Um, it calls for decarbonizing uh, public transportation and connecting, you know, via high-speed rail every major city in the U.S. It calls for, uh, you know, to the extent that it is technologically feasible. Uh, decarbonizing things like agriculture. 
uh, and other kinds of uh, sort of exurban or rural land uses. And so, you know, the Green New Deal is imagined uh, in HR 109 really begins to lay out a sort of built environment agenda that, you know, at least in the center, we've tried to take very seriously. It's part of, I think, how and why this, this atlas came together the way that it did. And, you know, the Green New Deal, I think, post HR 109 now lives on in many other places, one of which is in, at least recently, was in the sort of Democratic presidential primary where, you know, you had a half dozen or so um, candidates for president uh, really, I think, trying to articulate a specific climate and infrastructure vision for the future that often directly referenced the Green New Deal and tried to put some meat on the bones, uh, I think probably in their minds, some lab meat or some like uh, non-meat meat on the bones of the GND. Um, and then it also lives on in other places, I think, uh, in these hubs for research like the McCarg Center, like Data for Progress, like the Sunrise Movement, like a few others who really started to take seriously what it might mean to move this from, say, a political strategy or a high-level policy concept into something that's operationalizable, um, both for Congress and for state and local government. You know, I, I want to ask you one one additional question along these lines. So we're talking here about how the policy might drive changes, but really, uh, as we've mentioned earlier, policy alone isn't going to be responsible for the changes in the atlas of the United States that we're going to see. Climate change itself will be the fundamental driver. Obviously, the Green New Deal is a response to climate change. How sensitive are the models that you're using in the mat in the atlas? to our actions to mitigate climate change over this, this uh, century that we're in, and how will scenarios where we mitigate emissions differ from those in which we won't? Sure, it's a great question. You know, if you look at the, again, like the last quarter or so of the Atlas, where we start getting into some of these more projective images, uh, a lot of those models uh, are taking us not at the worst case uh, RCP emissions pathway, um, but really in the second worst. So somewhere between say six and seven degrees of warming uh, Celsius. And um, you know, as you can imagine, there is a lot we can do to avoid that pathway. Those models are the ones used by David Wallace Wells in his book, The Uninhabitable Earth, that really paints like the most dystopic image of the future possible. Uh, it even, you know, for whatever reason, decides at various points to talk about a geologic timescale in which there uh, were palm trees growing in the Antarctic. Um, which is a nice, like, I think, narrative uh, move to, like, get people to, to think about how bad things can get, although no one alive on the planet would ever, like, experience that. Um, but, you know, these, the models that you see there at the end are really, like, I think, trying to visualize what might happen spatially uh, were we to basically continue on as we've continued on, um, you know, business as usual for the foreseeable future. Uh, there's lots and lots and lots that we can do uh, between now and that, you know, fuzzy future to change the, the sort of shape and form and content of those maps. And I'll say quickly too, you know, just sectorally in housing and say transportation, especially, um, most of the technology that we need to avoid that pathway is already commercialized. It is readily, readily available. The, the issues there are around deployment and sort of political economy. Uh, they are not around sort of technological development. There are lots of things we don't know how to decarbonize like air travel and like steel production um, but when it comes to decarbonizing building materials and, you know, the electrical, the electric sector uh, and vehicles and all, all the things that like animate most of our everyday lives, uh, those are things that we know how to do and, and often, and often in, in many other places are already doing. So let's talk about the maps themselves. Zan, tell us about the major population shifts that are coming. In what places will people leave and, and in what places will people go to? 
So I think a lot of people know already that we're going to see a lot of coastal migration happening. And the maps that we um, drew working with Matt Howard's data for the most part um, show that there are actually a lot of coastal in and out migrations, people swapping coasts. Um, and so that's been a really interesting piece of some of the work that we've done is actually finding very like narratives that counterbalance some of the more common knowledge that we're seeing. But for the most part, um, people will be leaving the coast when they're seeing damage. Some of the later maps suggest that the coastal areas um, to a pretty far, uh, pretty far inland um, will see a lot of damage and migration patterns and people are gonna be moving north um, into areas that are also gonna be flooding. There's just not really, um, people are just gonna be moving around a lot and there's not gonna be a huge, <laughs> nowhere is going to be safe, um, but the economic damage and the, co and the coastal damage are gonna be the major drivers that force people further north and further, further inland. Yeah, I would, so I would for example, forces like, oh, go ahead, oh, go, go ahead, Billy. Well, I was just gonna say, yeah, I, I would add to that. So, you know, those migration maps are drawing on Matt Howard's work. Uh, he's a climate geographer based at Florida State. This is really the first time any of it's been visualized in, in anything other than like a county level map. Uh, and he was very gracious to share his data with us so that we could do it. Um, but I think to Zan's point, right, like the, the reality of climate change is that literally everything will be on the move and everything will be changing. Um, certainly people, but also ecosystems and other things. And these maps are showing essentially like the most optimistic possible scenario for the future. So you can look at them and like they're a tangled mess of like spaghetti noodles. Um, but also like that's about as good as it could possibly be because Matt's model is really just taking uh, the number of structures that will be inundated or literally underwater uh, during sort of uh, the median tide uh, each day in each of those places that Zane just mentioned uh, and then counting up the number of people who live in them. And that's only about 13 million people um, so about 13 million people in the most optimistic scenario will have no choice but to move. Um, and we know just from knowing the way that state and local economies are structured, particularly in places like Texas and Florida, where there is um, no income tax and where almost all state and local budgets are floated by a very heavy property tax, that when, you know, any sizable portion of, say, a Houston or a Miami or a Tampa or in New Orleans, in Louisiana, uh, are forced to move, that that will put incredible strain, probably irreconcilable strain uh, on budgets and force uh, a new round of municipal and state bankruptcies that will further drive um, sort of displacement of people. And uh, you know, I think what these maps are really trying to show is just one, that like cer certainly everything will be on the move, but two, also that at least for the moment in this country, we leave a lot of that motion completely up to the market. So. Uh, when your house is flooded out and you, you know, hopefully in the best case scenario, get a little bit of money, not enough, but a little bit of money from FEMA uh, to sort of help you um, either rebuild or, you know, relocate. Um, there are no strings attached to that that, you know, dictate where you might move. So if I live in a, a flood prone part of Miami and I want to move to a flood prone part of New York. Um, that's what I'm going to do. And those maps show actually a lot of people doing it when you attach uh, climate displacement models to uh, demographic, you know, conventional demographic models, which is really what Matt has done. Uh, and so I think, you know, we don't make this argument explicitly in the Atlas, although Zan and I have made it in other places. Um, part of what, you know, any, you know, viable adaptation strategy uh, on the climate or Green New Deal side of things has to include is a little more attention, a little more thought given to uh, how and where we sort of send people when they are inevitably displaced by you know, the effects of climate change, whether it's sea level rise or extreme heat, or uh, as this sort of agriculture map sort of shows you there, agriculture damages map shows um, the sort of collapse of your local economy when crops are no longer viable.
so we've talked here a lot about the push, right? Uh, rising sea levels, for example, uh, will, will push people out of certain parts of the country. But what is the pull going to be? Uh, what will draw people to their new homes, to their new jobs in the new locations? Well, you know, I'm not a demographer and I don't want to pretend to be, um, but I, I can say, you know, the, the way that these things are typically modeled is that people move uh, for a couple of reasons. One being that they have, you know, some kind of economic opportunity. Maybe they have a job in waiting um, when they're displaced from where they live now to where they're going next. Uh, maybe they have some kind of familial or cultural connection to a place. So uh, if you're an immigrant community, you know, living in, this actually happened in Philadelphia, uh, post Sandy, uh, where there was a, a large swath of the New York area uh, with a lot of Puerto Rican um, immigrants or, or you know residents um, who were displaced, uh, winding up in Philly because there was already an existing Puerto Rican community here. Um, that's partially a result of the islands diaspora, you know, extending um, much, you know, certainly well before Sandy and Maria, and will continue long after. Um, and those are the things that tend to drive, I think, where people uh, relocate. I think there's always this kind of fantasy that like we will be able to make our cities like extraordinarily attractive to them in other ways that probably don't cost as much or that are a little less sort of out of our control. And so we, you know, we build parks and we sort of do other things that um, we think of as kind of amenities that will attract people to urban locations. But ultimately, uh, nearly all of that is driven by, you know, economic opportunity and familial or cultural connection. Let me dive a little deeper on that one, if I may. Uh, do we have any projections here for specifically what industries may relocate to what areas and, and uh, create new job opportunities or other forces in specific areas of the country that the maps show? We don't really. Um, and I, I do think this is like an interesting question we're going to see coming up a lot more in the next few weeks and months. Um, I think the, the sort of crisis in the supply chain, the global supply chain that was revealed um, is well known, I think, somewhat scholars, but less well known in the policy community uh, post pandemic is going to require us to be a bit more thoughtful about uh, the extent to which, uh, at least in the US, we want to have some kind of planning in our economy. I mean, we're, we're not quite a fully market economy at the moment, we're a mixed economy in, in economic terms. Um, but we've never really, or at least in 100 years, haven't had formal industrial policy in this country. And I suspect, and I know from some of our conversations with members of Congress about uh, some of the stimulus work we've, we've been developing with them, uh, that, that, that one of the most sort of salient points for them is thinking, I think, creatively about how to uh, formalize and have real goals tied to industrial policy in the U.S. That would include thinking about, I think, exactly what the question that you're raising here, Andy, which is, you know, how do we think about um, you know, strengthening our supply chain, strengthening our economy, um, and maybe strengthening some of the places that are going to fare quite well, uh, you know, in an era defined by climate change all at the same time. Um, I don't think, you know, any amount of like great municipal like planning or urban design is going to say, make a million people move to Montana. They should, because it's beautiful. My brother lives there. And so I like always want an excuse to go see him. Um, but locating, you know, tens of thousands of new jobs in a sector that's going to be like a core part of the 21st century in the U.S. is a much easier way or a much more effective way probably to think about doing it. There's a very interesting map uh, that shows um, how much land Americans will need to mitigate their carbon emissions in the 21st century, in this current century. And it looks like there's a lot more land that's going to be needed to mitigate than actually produce energy in the first place. Uh, Zan, could you explain to me what's going on with that? 
Um, so this is, we're talking about the renewable energy section, and there's a carbon sequestration demands map where we are looking at just the total area needed for carbon sequestration in the U.S. Um, for the existing population and then for the in, influx of 100 million Americans. And the science backs this up as well, but we've just found that that's not really a viable option for thinking about decarbonizing the future. There's just not enough land possible for this, and that also is not the, the best way to decarbonize generally. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I would add to that too for, for Zane, because I think it's all right. Like, I feel like at times, like I'm losing my mind because I'm like yelling about how we can't, uh, I've become like a tree hater, even though I love trees. Um, <laughs> because there are so many, there are just like so many people who are like trying to, to pitch this idea of like trees as a, a, a long-term carbon sink. Like, certainly there's like the carbon capture and sequestration technology, which I do think is an important part of this conversation. Um, but trees are often bandied about for lots of reasons. And I mean, even just last year in Davos, uh, we saw, you know, the world's sort of economic elite mobilizing behind the idea of a trillion trees across the planet as a way to sequester carbon, which is a ludicrous idea for all kinds of reasons. One is that, as you, this question points out, Andy, that it just, it demands so much damn land that like, there is no way we can do that and do anything else. Um, but the other is that trees don't actually sequester carbon on a geologic timescale. They do it on a short-term basis, 20 to 30, maybe 40 years, and very slowly. And then they, as they do that, um, they create fuel for wildfires, which we know will become um, more rampant in an era defined by climate change. And they also release that carbon back into the atmosphere the moment they are cut down and burned or repurposed for whatever they might be repurposed for. And so this map is in there to do lots of things. One is just to show uh, exactly, well, not exactly, but about how much land it would require um, to sequester carbon in the U.S. alone um, through trees only. And, you know, looking at that map, setting aside all of the techno fix issues that I just highlighted, looking at that map, it's hard to imagine trees being a primary strategy if we have any, if we have any plans to do anything other than plant trees for the next 50 years. You know, as I was looking through these maps, um, it it recalled to me uh, The Grapes of Wrath, the famous book by John Steinbeck, where uh, people flee the Dust Bowl and they go to California uh, to look for new opportunity. Um, and so the question I want to ask is, are cities and states going to compete for migrants from other parts of the country as the map of the United States changes? Or are some places going to fight to keep those migrants out, as happened in that famous book? I know this is a bleak question, but it seems like one that's worth considering or, or keeping in mind. Billy, uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think the short answer is certainly they're going to do both. Um, but I, I also want to, I'll jump in, but I want to let Zan sort of take a whack at this too. Okay, so I think this is, um, I think it's going to be really interesting. I agree with Billy that it's going to be a little bit of both. I think. Uh, that is what's happening now to a degree when we look at different industries that require some degree of migrant labor or um, non-union labor and the ways that uh, that supports a lot of other areas in cities and economies. Um, I also think that that's going to be a huge driver of inequality as we move forward and as people are forced from um, where they live. Uh, in, in different ways and means depending upon their economic realities. And so it's going to be something that we're going to have to pay uh, attention to and make sure that as like industrial policy or national scale policies do come through, the Green New Deal, for example, 
um, that we take seriously what it means to be displaced and to be moving and to think about um, job creation as a way of enticing people to specific areas of having more robust communities and of taking seriously a just transition. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's all right. I, I would add, you know, living in a country, um, you know, organized through a federalist system, um, you know, I think the moniker that often gets bandied about and like the op-ed pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times is like, uh, what a wonderful experiment. States and cities are labs for, for innovation, uh, et cetera. And, you know, I think there is some truth to that, but not all of the innovation is about like progress towards some just decarbonized future. It's also about innovation on ways to exclude and um, discriminate against people. Uh, this is why you can see, you know, certain municipalities and certainly certain states. Um, our, our lovely friend, Joe Arpaio, who was convicted uh, and then pardoned by the president, um, is now running for his old job in Arizona, where he pioneered the Papers, Please Act that resulted in, among many other things and many other, like, you know, I think bits of human misery and suffering, uh, the loss of several seasons of real agricultural productivity in Arizona, um, because there was no one left to work the fields, um, because they ensured through extraordinarily racist immigration policy that it was almost impossible for any person of color to feel secure sort of walking around um, without papers. And we saw that in Alabama a few years afterwards, we're gonna see um, this sort of backlash to, um, you know, this, this coming influx or, or reshuffling of people uh, all over the country for the foreseeable future. I think there are ways that we can imagine, um, you know, blunting the worst effects of that through stronger um, and more egalitarian controls that might come through a Green New Deal, might come through a just transition, whatever it might be, that either compel or incentivize states or, or, or local governments um, to set aside though that kind of like racial animus uh, and focus purely on like being the most economically competitive, which requires that they also then be probably also the most culturally and, and racially diverse uh, places that they can be. Um, but we also just know from you know several hundred years of American history that things will not work out quite that neatly. All right, so Billy, we've been talking about distributions of people and resources across the country, uh, but some changes will be, as you've just kind of alluded to, at a more local level. Along these lines, you've mentioned uh, in the in the atlas the idea of public wealth and private simplicity. Can you tell us what that's about? Sure. So, I mean, this isn't my idea. I would love to take credit for it, but it's been floating around in kind of the academic literature for a little over 150 years now. Um, but really, this is this is about thinking uh, about climate policy as be again being about something more than simply electrons and molecules, but being about uh, shaping how and where we live and how we all relate to one another, like in the places where we live. Uh, and so, you know, we're on the verge of having our first trillionaire uh, in the world with Jeff Bezos. Um, that's happening, you know, in the you know in the specter of just immense human suffering, not only around the world, but even just like really in any city, any community in the United States right now where he lives. Um, and so really, I think what a Green New Deal is sort of demanding uh, is probably a way to think differently about the way our economy is structured and the way that we all relate to one another. Um, and it's not to say that like Jeff Bezos would be say stripped of all of his assets and like they'd be redistributed across the entire country to everyone else who needs them, although that would be nice. Um, but I think what it's actually, when we think about like public luxury and private simplicity, what we're really saying is that there are a set of needs um, on the public side in our public spaces and our public housing and our public infrastructure and our public transportation uh, and our public communication systems, telecom systems um, that have to be satisfied um, before any of those other questions about like individual um, sort of hyper wealth uh, can really begin to factor in. And there are lots of ways to think about instrumentalizing that. 
But I think the most important is to sort of imagine, um, you know, how many people might use, say, Rittenhouse Square here in Philadelphia? How many people might use uh, Central Park or Prospect Park in New York? How many people, uh, you know, might use the Riverfront Park in Little Rock, Arkansas? Like, these are all the things where, you know, actual, like, immense numbers of people stand to benefit greatly from relatively modest investments in turning our our parks into luxurious public spaces of leisure for anyone who wants to use them and turning our, our public housing or our affordable housing into uh, what housing movement folks have begun to call uh, temples of public luxury. Um, and doing all of those things by asking for just a little bit more from, um, you know, our, the world's first trillionaire and maybe a few other people uh, along the way in the form of sort of a, a slightly higher uh, tax bracket. Um, and so anyway, I think like this like idea of public luxury and private simplicity is really about sort of uh, the Green New Deal's uh, demand that we rebuild uh, the public a public sector that's been hollowed out by 40 years of privatization and financialization. Um, not to take everything over. Um, I can't imagine a world in which like everything that I would want to become sort of a public good or service is in fact a public good or service. But it's about asking for more from you know the sort of bits of, of public space, the bits of public infrastructure. Um, that we now have and will have uh, as the world is rebuilt by something like a Green New Deal. Well, to bring it into the climate perspective and, and reducing emissions, for example, couldn't this also apply to public transportation? That's a, a, a public infrastructure that could replace a private infrastructure, such as uh, you know everybody owning their own car or two cars. I mean, if that could all become a public good, meaning uh, more extensive public transport, then, then, then there's a shift there as well, right? Exactly. And it's not like, you know, when we say, when I say public luxury, it's not that I mean that like, oh, instead of riding in like a beat up SEPTA train, you'll be riding in like some, whatever the limousine version of that is. It just means that we'll have enough trains running. So more trains, not necessarily like more luxurious, um, you know, high end trains, but more of them so that, you know, anyone who needs to rely on public transportation to get to and from work can actually afford to do that. Um, you know, we don't need to get into the weeds of it too much, but in the U.S., almost all, you know, Depart U.S. Department of Transportation funding is set aside for capital projects, not for operations and maintenance, which means that we often tend to build uh, new extensions to lines that already exist of public transit, or as more is more often the case, we tend to build uh, roads and roads and roads into exurbia, um, and as opposed to taking care of the infrastructure and the services that we already have. And so, you know, a, a world in which um, there is private simplicity and public luxury might simply mean that, you know, you and I can safely rely on a train or a bus to get to and from work and not worry that if we miss the one we were planning to grab and the next one doesn't come for 30 minutes that we might be late and might get fired if we're late to work. Let me ask the two of you a final question here, if I may. What specific Green New Deal ideas have been floated that will be most instrumental in creating the maps as forecast by the 2100 project? What specific policy initiatives or ideas are out there right now that will, that will bring much of this to pass? So, I mean, I, I think it's a, that's a great question and it's one that we'll probably all sit with for a long time. It's probably going to be one of the, the more pressing or defining questions for the next 10, 20, 30 years of uh, climate policy development in the US. Um, I think the easy answer is that like there is no one or a couple of you know policy ideas that are going to uh, I think help us avoid the, the worst case scenario that some of these maps highlight. Uh, I think you know the challenge that climate change poses to to us, to the world, uh, to the planet, 
is that it's diffuse and complex. Um, it's hard to discern, um, you know, in a sort of clouded field of different signals bouncing all over the place. Uh, and what the Green New Deal really demands, I think, is that we think holistically about way, the ways that we might restructure um, everything we know about the world that we all sort of live in and operate in. And there are lots of there are lots of things like specific things we could point to, um, you know, sectorally. So around housing, around transportation, um, around public land that might help us think about, um, you know, achieving some of the, the more discrete goals of the Green New Deal in a specific sector. But ultimately, like climate change is bigger than any one sector, it's bigger than any one community or country. Um, it is planetary in scale. Um, and so I think thinking about this question um, just makes just reminds me um, that there is probably no like single or single set of answers to this question. And I guess I, I would maybe, you know, people are looking for for concrete things to sort of hold on to, which I get because I do this all the time too. I would direct them to this project that um, you know, is very much related to this atlas that was released a couple months ago, uh, late March, called A Green Stimulus to Rebuild Our Economy. Um, lots of you know familiar faces or names on there for folks who are in the climate world uh, that we put together sort of the beginning of the, the global shutdown due to the pandemic that you know basically divides the economy up into eight sectors, lays out anywhere from say 10 to 20 specific sort of policy interventions or ideas um, that Congress might be able to sort of pick up and run with that can put us on a short path to net zero or a short path to the Green New Deal. Um, and I'm very happy to say that um, that letter itself has now resulted in something called a Dear Colleague sign-on letter. So uh, Nanette Barragan from um, the Port of LA District in California, along with um, Congressman Tonko and several others uh, on the House side are leading a sign-on process uh, that's intended to really shape, um, you know, the sort of post-HEROES, post-CARES Act stimulus negotiations in Congress. Um, whether that yields, you know, the kinds of things we want it to yield is very much to be determined. Um, but that letter itself, and certainly um, I think the, the future debates that will unfold there uh, as people begin the slow process of returning to work, um, you know, that letter itself will offer a bunch of these kind of more concrete, specific ideas um, that, I'm, that I think we're all sort of looking for in this moment. Zan and Billy, thanks very much for talking. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Andy. Today's guests have been Billy Fleming, director of the Ian L. McCarg Center at the University of Pennsylvania's Weitzman School of Design, and Alexandra Lillahai, a climate infrastructure policy fellow at the McCarg Center. The maps we've talked about in today's podcast are available on the website of the McCarg Center for Urbanism and Ecology. The center's website is mccarg.upenn.edu. And for more energy and environmental policy news and research, visit the Climate Center's website or subscribe to our Twitter feed. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.